You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. Okay, we are talking about the great doctrines of our faith and their relevance for our lives. And so it's really a, just a doctrinal study where we're kind of looking at the foundational uh, theological realities that, that we stand on. Uh, it is belief in these things that separate those who know Christ from those that do not know Christ. And, and so we're, we're talking about these foundational uh, doctrines. We've talked about the doctrine of revelation, how God reveals himself to man. We've talked about the doctrine of God, his, his person, his works. Uh, and tonight we're going to talk about the doctrine of Christ. The doctrine of Christ. We started this last week. If you look there in your notes, the first blank is filled in because we talked about this last week. We talked about the person of Christ. We discussed the reality that Jesus is fully God and fully man and talked a great uh, deal about that. Well, tonight we're going to talk about the work of Christ, the work of Christ, uh, what Christ has done and what Christ is currently doing. And so we'll have a a good time studying that tonight, but just kind of whet our appetite. I've, I got an extended quote from Philip Schaff that really helps to remind us we're talking tonight about Jesus. And it's, it's a powerful quote, a little bit longer, but just, just kind of hone in and listen to it as I read. Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning... He shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and schools combined. Without the eloquence of schools, he spoke words of life such as never were spoken before or since and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of any orator or poet without writing a single line. He has set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and sweet songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times." Born in a manger and crucified as a malefactor, he now controls the destinies of the civilized world and rules a spiritual empire which embraces one-third of the inhabitants of the globe. There never was in this world a life so unpretending, modest, and lowly in its outward form and condition, and yet producing such extraordinary effects upon all ages, nations, and classes of men. The annals of history produce no other example of such Complete and astonishing success in spite of the absence of those material, social, literary, and artistic powers and influences which are indispensable to success for a mere man. And so that quote, the extended quote, really just points to what Christ has done and what Christ is currently doing. And his works set him apart from from anyone else that's ever lived in human History. So let's talk about the work of Christ, the work of Christ, which is kind of the second heading that theologians usually use to discuss uh, Christology, the nature of Christ, the work of Christ. And many theologians break down the work of Christ under three different headings. And I'm going to use those three headings tonight because I think it, it, it really helps us to discuss the different facets of Jesus' uh, works. But... Uh, 
many theologians use a breakdown um, of discussing Jesus um, that goes prophet, priest, and king. They want to talk about Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, Jesus as king. If, if you read the Old Testament, the, the three major offices that you see over and over again are the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And those three offices foreshadow the one who would come and be a prophet, a priest, and a king. His name is Jesus. And so I want to discuss the works of Jesus under the, the three headings of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, the ESV Study Bible uh, labels those three areas a little bit differently. I'm going to use two of those labels. I, I changed one for my third label. But uh, I want to just share these, these three offices and how they speak of the work of Christ. First of all, let's talk about the prophetic work of Christ. The prophetic work of Christ. The prophetic work of Christ. Now, to start and to kind of set the foundation, look there in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel. And he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so Moses makes this prophecy that God is going to send a prophet who is like unto Moses in that he will speak forth the very words of God. And so, of course, Jews uh, began to look for this prophet. Who, who is this prophet that would come? And, and they began to understand that the, the Messiah God would send would be this prophet. In fact, over in uh, John chapter uh, 1, uh, as the, the popularity of John the Baptist increases, religious leaders come to John the Baptist to ask who he is. And they ask him this question, are you the prophet? Are you, the pro are you this one that Moses prophesied about uh, thousands of years ago? Or are you the one that God said he was going to send? And, and John the Baptist says, no, it's not me. It's not, I'm the forerunner. I, I'm not the prophet. And he pointed people to Jesus, who is the prophet. Let me show you some verses that speak of Jesus being this prophet. Look over in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Verse 14. This is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000, which, by the way, is the only miracle of Jesus that's found in all four Gospels. This was a major moment in Jesus' earthly ministry. It really got people's attention. And after John's account of Jesus feeding 5,000-plus people with five loaves of bread and two fish, it was a miraculous, supernatural work, it says there in verse 14, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed what? The prophet who is to come into the world. 
So they're, they're linking Jesus to this prophecy that Moses made thousands of years prior to this time. And it gets even more specific. Look over in Acts, next book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Look in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. The context here is Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. If you remember in Acts 2, the the Holy Spirit fell on the apostles and the New Testament church, and they began to preach the gospel. And on that day they preached the gospel, 3,000 people uh, became followers of Christ. They were saved. And look what it says in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. This is Peter's sermon. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. So he's quoting from Deuteronomy 17, which we read a little bit earlier. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And so there in chapter uh, 3, Peter, speaking in Solomon's portico after the day of Pentecost, is saying that this, this prophet that Moses prophesied is none other than Jesus, the one that God sent to you as, as the Jews um, first. And so uh, the Bible is very clear. The prophet that Moses said was coming is Jesus Christ. And this tells us that during Jesus' earthly ministry, part of what he was doing, or part of what he came to accomplish, was to be a prophet, to speak forth truth. And by the way, the word prophet is used in a couple of different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used of someone speaking the, the future, speaking about the future, what is going to, predicting the future. Sometimes it just means someone that is speaking forth uh, truth. And of course, both aspects are, are present in Jesus' ministry. But he came to be a prophet. This means, back in your notes, Jesus proclaimed truth. And right off the bat, when Jesus began to teach, he got folks' attention. Let me show you this in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, love this passage, Mark chapter 1, verse 21. The Bible says they went into to Capernaum, this is Jesus and his followers, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, fulfilling the role of a prophet, speaking forth truth. And look what it says in verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, the the demon, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirit and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. When Jesus began to teach and show his authority over the demonic realm, it got folks' attention. 
they would gather and say, this, this one named Jesus has something to say. And he says it with great authority. He is, he is uh, calling the shots. He's ruling and reigning and speaking with that authority. And so Jesus proclaimed truth. And, and one of the interesting things to trace throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is to look at all the different topics that Jesus taught about during his earthly ministry. Things he spoke truth about. For example, Jesus talked about money. He told us the truth about money. In fact, there's a lot of information in Jesus' teaching alone about money. How we should relate to material things. He taught the truth about marriage. About worry. About forgiveness. About relationships. About leadership. He taught the truth about how we ought to treat others. He taught the truth about discipleship, the Word of God, service, politics, persecution, prayer, the kingdom of God, spiritual warfare, the Trinity, heaven, the church, sanctification, the greatest commandments, end times. And we can go on and on and on and on with all that Jesus taught. So so consider this. As Jesus was on the earth speaking forth truth on all these different items, he was fulfilling the role of prophet. That, That... the prophetic work of Christ. So he proclaimed truth. And then Jesus proclaimed good news. Good news. Look back in Mark 1 at verse 14. Mark 1 verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. That's the word uh, that could be translated good news, the word euangelion. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus was very specifically preaching the good news. Now what's the good news? 1 Corinthians 15 says the good news is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and on the third day he rose according to the scriptures. He was, he was teaching that I have come, Jesus saying I have come to do something about your greatest issue, sin. I've, I've come to, to save you from your sin. And so Jesus proclaimed truth. And Jesus proclaimed good news. He taught the gospel. I love the passage in John 6. After Jesus feeds the 5,000, a great crowd gathers because they want Jesus to do it again. And they're not really interested in following Jesus. They're interested in him performing more miracles. Hey, make me some bread, Jesus. Heard you did it for those folks. Make me some bread. And and they begin to follow him around. And then Jesus began to teach in John 6. And and he taught some very difficult things. And when he taught these difficult things, calling for for all-in discipleship, that they needed to follow him and believe in him, the Bible says the multitudes went home. They left. And Jesus is there with just his small band of disciples. And at the end of John chapter 6, this is my wife's, one of my wife's favorite passages. At the end of John chapter 6, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, You don't want to go away too, do you? Are you willing to accept what I have to say? Or do you want to leave like those thousands of people just left? And Peter says, says Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, Peter's saying, your teaching is truth. Your teaching is good news. You're the prophet. Where else would we go? And so we see the work of Christ lived out in his prophetic 
work, the prophetic work of Christ. And I'll just say this as an aside, and, and I'm a little biased when I make this statement because I am a preacher. But, but you hear, and it, and it comes up every few years in church circles, and they begin to talk about how you can be more relevant, how you can reach more people, and, and those kinds of discussions. And a lot of those discussions are good. But I hear every so often someone say, well, you know, preaching is it, preaching's so, such an ancient deal, and do we really want to gather people together and, and sit them down and, and preach to them and, and teach the Word of God and stand behind a pulpit? And do, I mean, we, we, do we really need preaching anymore? I mean, can't we find some more creative, relevant ways to reach people? I would answer that with this, I would just say this simply, Jesus preached and taught, and that's good enough for me. That was part of his ministry, the, the, the prophetic work of Christ. But secondly, as we think about the work of Christ, let's think about the priestly work of Christ. Again, the three Old Testament offices, prophet, priest, and king. And, and all those three offices foreshadowed the one who would come and fulfill all three. And we think about the, the, the high priest, the priesthood that was established in the Old Testament to oversee, carrying out the sacrificial system, the ceremonial law. And these priests in the Old Testament uh, foreshadowed Jesus. So how did Jesus fulfill the priestly work? How did, how did he come in and, and fulfill the role of high priest? Well, let me give you four words. First of all, representation. It's part of what a high priest did is they represented the people before God. In fact, if you read in Exodus, I think around, I don't know, 32, 33, 34, 35, right in those last chapters of Exodus, the, the garments of the high priest are described. And the, the priest would put the names of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders and would come before the the, um, the Ark of the Covenant and, and, and spread blood on the, the mercy seat, which was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, as a symbolic way to, 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 to demonstrate that if you are sinner separated from God, there must be shed blood of, of, of one who is innocent to cover your sin, to, to make payment for your sin. And the high priest would come before God bearing the names of the tribes of Israel. He was there to represent Israel. Now, how does Jesus, as the great high priest, as the Bible calls him, how does he represent? And specifically, how does he represent you and me? Look over in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> Excuse me. Look in verse 14. Since therefore... The children, that's talking about you and me, share in flesh and blood. We are made of flesh. We, we are made of blood. We have physical uh, realities. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, talking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's humanity. So that he might become, watch this, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So for 
for Jesus to be able to come and die for sinners like me and sinners like you, he had to take on humanity so he could represent us before God. So, he, so as a human, he could die in the place of other humans. That's the only way that God's justice against our sin could be carried out. For one who is like us to die for us. And Jesus took on flesh and blood, watch this, so he could represent us before God. He could bear us before God and make the payment for our sins. So the first way that Jesus fulfilled the work of representation or, or, or work of high priest is through representation. The second word is the word atonement. He died for our sins. Look over in 1 Peter chapter 3. The word atonement basically means a price paid. A price paid that one might be forgiven or reconciled. And Jesus paid a price that he might reconcile us to God. I've heard some people take that word atonement and break it down and say at one which means that Jesus shed his blood that he might make us one with God. He might bring us into relationship with God. He paid the penalty we deserve. See, our sin separates us from God. Until our sin is forgiven, until the penalty has been paid, we can't have a relationship with God. We can't be one with God. But Jesus came and died on the cross, shedding his own blood as God in human flesh, so the penalty could be paid, our sins could be washed away, and we could be reconciled to God. That is atonement. And look what it says in 1 Peter 3.18. And there are a lot of verses we could go to to talk about the work of Christ's substitutionary atonement. But look what it says in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. He, the righteous, died for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to at one with God, that he might bring us into relationship with God. That is the work of atonement. Jesus died that he might make us one with God. That, that, and that's what a high priest would do. A high priest would shed the blood of an animal and would sprinkle that, that blood on the altar and on the Ark of the Covenant as a symbolic way of saying, because you're sinners, blood must be shed. And in Hebrews 9.22, the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to shed his blood to accomplish the work of atonement. Charles Spurgeon says it like this, God in his infinite mercy has devised a way by which justice can be satisfied, his wrath against our sin, and yet mercy can be triumphant. We could be forgiven of our sin. Jesus Christ offered unto divine justice that which was accepted as an equivalent for the punishment due to all his people. Jesus shed his blood for the work of atonement. He came as, a, as, a, as a, a high priest, not as it says in Hebrews, not with the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but with his own blood he came and fulfilled this work of atonement. Number three, priestly work of Christ, sympathy. Sympathy. A, a priest would minister to the people and help them to navigate the different laws and commandments and ceremonies and answer their questions about God and about life and how to live the right kind of life. So there was a, a, a pastoral aspect to what a priest would do. And, and Jesus, uh, as our high priest, has that same sympathy for us. Look what it says over in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. 
I love this passage. Since then we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ took on humanity. He took on human flesh, so he experienced temptation in that humanity. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. In other words, because Jesus Christ took on human flesh, he understands what it's like to walk around in human flesh. He understands the weakness, the limitation, the frailty, the reality of temptation, and Jesus was tempted yet without sin. But because he took on humanity, there's a special sympathy that our high priest is able to have with us and to minister to us when we are going through difficult times. Here's the fourth priestly work of Christ, intercession. Intercession, that's prayer. That means that Jesus, as our great high priest, prays for us over in John 17. And if you haven't read John 17 in a while, I encourage you to take uh, 15, 20 minutes, make a cup of coffee, sit in your favorite chair, and just slowly read through John 17. Because John 17 is the, the, the high priestly prayer of Christ where Jesus is praying for his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. So this is right before he went to the cross, and he's praying for his disciples. And you say, well, what's that got to do with us? Well, in that prayer he says, I'm praying for those you've given me, my disciples who are following me, but I'm also praying these things for everyone who will believe in me through their word. In other words, in John 17, Jesus is praying for everyone that would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and, and be saved. So in John 17, he's praying, if you're a Christian, if you've received the gospel, he's praying for you, he's praying for me, he's praying for us. So John 17 is a beautiful picture of the things that Christ prays. Like he prays in John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, set them apart, change them in the truth. And then he says, your word is truth. He prays, make them one, make them unified, give them love for one another. I mean, just it's a beautiful prayer. And so Jesus, as the high priest, is praying for us. And it gets even better. Over in John, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 7. Look in Hebrews 7 with me. Verse 25. Hebrews 7 verse 25. It says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. I love that phrase. We could preach a sermon on that. He's able to save... To the uttermost, those who draw near to God, watch this, through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. That verse teaches us that if you belong to Jesus, if you've received the good news about Christ and trusted Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, then he represents you before God, he's reconciled you to God, and as part of that high priestly work, it says there that he is he is making intercession. He is always living to make intercession for you. He is praying for you. Now, how's that for some good news? I mean, to think, now to think that Jesus would take my name on his lips and talk to God the Father about me is mind-blowing. 
And it's the same with all of us. If you know Christ, He is speaking your name before the Father. He is praying for you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows your struggles, your weaknesses. And He is praying for you. He's, he ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. That's part of what He does. That's part of His work as our great high priest. First John 2 says that He is our advocate before the Father. He is our, our eternal representative. So once we're saved, we'll never lose our salvation because he will always be our advocate before the Father, applying his shed blood to our spiritual account. Intercession. I love this quote from Robert Murray McShane. I think I put it in your notes. Is that quote in there, Robert Murray McShane? Is that in there? This is a good one. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Don't you like that? Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So listen, if you were in your kitchen and Jesus was, was you know, manifest himself in your living room and you could hear him praying, that would be encouraging, right? I just heard Jesus take my name and mention my name and he, he's praying for me. I mean, that would be awesome. That would strengthen you and encourage you and fill you with, with, with passion. But just because we can't Hear him pray in the natural realm doesn't mean he's not praying. We may not hear him in the next room, but he is praying for us. And that reality ought to strengthen our spiritual lives. The distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If you walked in tonight discouraged, leave encouraged that Jesus as your great high priest is praying for you. Now, a lot of you tell me how you're praying for me, and that encourages me. I, 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 there's nothing you can do for me greater than pray for me, and I love to hear people tell, talk to me about how they're praying for me, and hear how you're praying for me is very, very encouraging. And to take that to the nth degree, to, he, to know that Jesus is praying for me? Wow. Wow. That's part of his work as our high priest. So, we talked about the prophetic work of Christ. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament role of prophet. Speaking the truth of God. We talk about the priestly work of Christ. Jesus fulfills the role of the high priest. Representing us before God. Making atonement. Praying for us. But third, let's talk about the royal work of Christ. The royal work of Christ. I think the ESV Study Bible, when they gave these three headings, they used the phrase, the kingly work of Christ. And I just kind of like royal better. Um, the royal work of Christ. So just like the Bible focuses on the office of king, if you read through the Old Testament, kings are prolific. In fact, the second king of Israel uh, was David, and God made a covenant with David. And he said to David that from your descendants, there's, there's going to come a king one day whose reign will have no end. That's called the Davidic covenant. And that king is Jesus. In Matthew 1, when Jesus... Uh, or the birth narrative comes, uh, there's the genealogy first, and Jesus is called in that genealogy the son of David. He's the fulfillment of this, this promise that there would be a forever king that comes through the lineage of King David. Jesus is that king. And Jesus fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king. Now how does, how does Jesus 
perform the office of king? Well, I'm thrilled that you would ask. And there are three answers to that question. I love asking my own questions and then answering them. That's just part of the fun it is of being a preacher. But number one, reigning. Reigning. R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G. Reigning. Uh, we talked about this uh, in, in my sermon Sunday and the Sunday before that. So I won't, I won't revisit that uh, other than to say that after Jesus died on the cross and was, rose from the dead, he ascended back to the Father. And the Bible says he's at the right hand of God, the place of authority. The place where the kings rule and reign. He's at the right hand of God. And the Bible says the earth is his footstool. And at the end of Ephesians 1, it says that Jesus reigns over every name that's been named. None higher than Jesus. None greater than Jesus. None more authoritative than Jesus. Jesus reigns supreme. And so part of what Jesus is doing as the king is he's reigning and ruling over the universe. Now right now, his reigning work is in some measure hidden from our eyes. It's, you might call it the invisible reign of Christ. But one day, the invisible is going to become visible when Jesus returns. And at that point, everyone will recognize that Jesus reigns. It says over in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so one day, again, invisible will become visible. But just because it's invisible doesn't mean that Jesus is not carrying out human history to his desired end. He is reigning. Number two, he's sustaining. Sustaining. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Which is a weighty statement. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus, by his word, is is upholding and sustaining the universe. He's keeping it all together. Keeping it in the, the form he wants it to be in. So that when it's all said and done, he will get ultimate glory. He's sustaining. One pastor said... It might have been Spurgeon. I don't have the quote in front of me, but uh, I think it was Spurgeon. He, he made a comment like this, that there is, not a, there is not a rogue molecule in the universe over which Jesus Christ does not reign. He's holding it all together, sustaining. And then third, the royal work of Christ is manifest through judging. Through judging. Now turn over to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, I want to show you this. John chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus teaching here. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? The Son. Why? That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, now watch this, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out 
will come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So here's what Jesus is saying. God the Father has placed all matters of judgment at the, the, the end of all things in the hands of King Jesus. And so people can ignore Jesus or mock Jesus or malign Jesus here in this life, but there's coming a day when everyone will stand before Jesus. That day's coming. Jesus says it here in this text. Over in 2 Timothy 4, uh, Paul writing to Timothy says, I adjure you. He's about to tell him to preach the word, but he says, I adjure you, I exhort you uh, in view of Jesus' return who will come to judge the quick and the dead. He speaks of the return of Christ to judge. Now, what is the judgment of Christ going to look like? Well, there are two judgments we need to be aware of. The first is... Christ's judgment over those who are unsaved. Look what it says over in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11, near the very back of your Bible. John, the apostle, is given this vision of the unfolding of the end times. And at the end of all things, he sees this. I saw a great white throne and him who seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, judged, notice that, by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that, that passage tells us that Jesus, at the end of all things, will will be seated on the great white throne of judgment. And he will uh, assign people their eternal destiny, heaven or hell, based upon whether or not their name is in the book of life. And this book of life is called the Lamb's book of life, which means this. If you belong to the Lamb, if you are a Christian, your name is in this book. If you've placed your faith in Christ, your name is in this book. And if your name is not in the book, he says, you'll be cast into an eternal lake of fire. Pretty scary stuff. But that time is coming. And, and, and hopefully this reminds you of why we do what we do. You know, why do we, why do we share the gospel every week? Why do we invite people to church? Why do we pray for lost loved ones? Why do we go on mission trips? Why do we do local mission? Pro I mean, why do we do all that? What, what's our purpose? Because we know that everyone one day will be assigned an eternal destiny, heaven or hell. And because Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, if people accept Christ, they can go to heaven. Amen? We want people to, to go to heaven, not go to hell. We want their name in the book of life. Jesus loves them. Jesus died for them. And so we want people to know this. That's why we do what we do. But this day is coming. This day is coming. And Jesus is the one who's been given the authority to judge. 
Jesus is the one who will assign eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. And just say it again very clearly. Where a person spends eternity, heaven or hell, is based upon what they do with Jesus here in this life. They either believe in Him, trust Him as Lord and Savior, or they reject Him or keep Him at arm's length or ignore Him. But where a person spends eternity is based upon what they do with Jesus here in this life. Now, if you're a Christian, you're saying, Whew, I'm glad I'm not going to be at the great white throne of judgment to have to go through that. I'm glad my name's in the book of life and, and uh, that I don't have to think about the lake of fire. And I'm just, I'm just so grateful that the great white throne of judgment is not for me. But, but before we close, there is another judgment seat. It's found over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it's called the judgment seat of Christ. And, and, and the word seat there is a, is a different word. It's the word bema, the bema seat of Christ. And uh, in, in the first century, the bema seat is where the, the judge would be seated and would um, oversee athletic events. And if they were, for example, overseeing a race... When someone won the race, this, this judge on the Bema seat would present to the winner a crown to say, you won, you're victorious. It was a reward for their performance in the athletic event. Now, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that there will be a judgment seat of Christ. And he says, we as Christians will appear before this judgment seat. Now, let me be as clear as I can be on this to make this distinction. The great white throne of judgment is about heaven or hell. It's about eternal destiny. The judgment seat of Christ is for Christians who are going to heaven when they die. That's already been settled. But it's, it's, it's a, a, a judgment as to how we lived our Christian life. We're going to heaven. Praise the Lord for that. But it's a, a, a judgment to say, were we stewards of the life God gave us on this earth? And there will be rewards, I believe. There will be crowns given for those who faithfully served Christ. I believe at the great white throne, of, I mean, not the great white throne, the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ for Christians, I believe there are going to be some tears. We'll probably all stand there and think, boy, I think I could have, I think I could have been a better steward of the life God gave me on that earth. You say, well, there are no tears in heaven. It's not what the Bible says. Revelation 21 says, he will wipe the tears from our eyes. And maybe one of the reasons there might be some tears streaming down our cheek is because we might look back at our life and think, oh man, I, I wasted, some, wasted some time. I wasted some resources. I, I was not a steward, a faithful steward like I could have been. That's the judgment seat of Christ. And Jesus has the authority to evaluate how we live our Christian life, and to give us rewards accordingly. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we make it our aim to please Him. That's what we want to do in this life. We want to please Christ. We want to, we want to step into heaven and hear Him say, well done, what? Good and faithful servant. I want to hear that. You want to hear that. So let's live in a way that pleases Him. That's the the judgment seat of Christ. But part of Jesus' reign, part of Jesus being the king, is he will perform the judgment at the great white throne, 
And he will be the judge at the judgment seat of Christ for those who are Christians and are on their way to heaven. So, again, prophet, priest, king. Jesus has fulfilled all of those roles perfectly and performed the works necessary to be a faithful prophet, a great high priest, and an amazing, majestic king. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.